The Money Show. Shapeshifters. And a very warm welcome this evening to the Chief Executive of Ocean Basket. Her name is Grace Harding. You're an international woman of mystery nowadays, Grace Harding. Where do we catch up with you tonight? Why do my best intros always end up uh, landing? Oh, there you are, on deaf ears. There we go. After all this time, Grace, really. I'm in Johannesburg. A rare visit I'm in Johannesburg. Um, so, but you have been traveling an awful lot in the last year or two, haven't you? Growing the business of Ocean Basket internationally. How are things going? No, things are going good. Uh, December was a good month. The calm before the storm, before the next calm, before the next storm. Uh, but it's a totally new world. I mean, I, I have to find new words. Everyone's saying the same thing. But uh, the, the brand is strong. We're very blessed that it was founded by a guy who had a vision. And seafood is still relevant. Of course, it's not easy to run it. Um, and it's not that easy when there's a lot of darkness. But that's life. You know, I sort of wake up and pretend I was only born today. So that's just the way it is. <laughs> now, Fats of course, is the man you are referring to. We chatted to him uh, last year, and I thought it'd be quite fun to catch up with you yeah. because he is he gave us the origin story about how it was, I think, in Ravonia, yeah. the, the very first outlet, and his idea was to introduce affordable seafood to people in a world where Villa Mora, remember Villa Mora, um, was so dominant mm. in the, the top end of seafood, and he wanted to make it accessible, make it affordable, um, which is what mm. he did with plastic tablecloths, plastic chairs, um, and kept keeping it really simple. You've, you've moved on in leaps and bounds since then, of course. Mm. I think the, the offering made sense. And I often say to him, I think his mind was pure because he didn't have the money to travel overseas and go to America and pick up concepts. And the, the concept was born from uh, an idea that said, why should only, oh, I can hear other voices. Uh, that's okay. People, I mean, that often sorry. happens. Great. Oh, sorry. So, um, so I think the success came because he just invented something from scratch and he realized that there's a need for seafood. And his biggest motivating factor was people who said to him, you're mad. Nobody likes seafood. They eat chicken and meat. So, yeah, it's come a long way. But I think those firm foundations, which is an intent to give more people an opportunity to feel spoiled and have something special. It was a good intent. And we are entering our 28th year, which I cannot believe. It's nearly 30-year-old brand. Uh, how long have you been around at, uh, at Ocean Basket? It's 11 years. I started in 2012 and yeah. by accident. And uh, it's 11 years. And, uh, yeah, it's, I'm completely smitten and obsessed. So it's been a long time. But you were running your own consulting business, I think, if memory serves. You were running a consulting business. How did you get hooked into, hooked, you see that, uh, into, oh, into, well a, done. into <laughs> a, a fish restaurant? Um, so I left corporate life in 98 after many years with the Edgars Group. And uh, my then boss introduced me to Fats because they were family friends. And at the time, he had been offered an opportunity to set up a joint venture between Steers and Ocean Basket to build a takeaway seafood brand, which is called Fisherways. So Fisherways oh. is a baby of a one-night stand. And my background has always been a mixture of marketing and 
people and training. I'm a little bit of a generalist. So I helped him set up Fisherwave. But after a year, he realized, gee was why am I building another brand? And he and Steers in, that, in those days parted very amicably. He sold the IP and he carried on building Ocean Basket. And I decided to specialize in employee engagement and leadership, which I did for well, until 2012, where I met him again and he called me again. And now, how many ocean baskets in total are there in the world? You know, I know it's weird. I don't count because I worry I'm going after numbers. Uh, but there's 236 around the world, the majority in South Africa, nine in Cyprus, two newborns kicking and screaming uh, and vomiting and farting in the UK. <laughs> um, Mauritius, there's four... Nigeria for Kazakhstan for Zambia, Zimbabwe, Kenya. Yeah, it's about two hundred and thirty-five. Kazakhstan. Okay, we'll, we'll get to. We'll, we'll, sorry, was was it Malta? You said. Um, we'll get there. And Malta, my, yeah. And, and Malta. So you've taken. I mean, again, I remember talking to you about this a long time ago, saying you've taken Mediterranean mm. seafood to the Mediterranean. Um, and the simple mm. answer to that was, well, you know, those that that sea is fished out. There isn't. The, the sort of natural resource that may have been there 200 years ago. And, and so therefore it presented an opportunity. But Kazakhstan, how on earth did you end up in Kazakhstan? Gosh, you know, we, we're actually in Kazakhstan. Uh, Zim is also landlocked. Eh? Kazakhstan's an interesting one. Now, all, all the countries you mentioned, they experienced ocean basket either in South Africa or Cyprus. And those guys, entrepreneurs, they fell in love. So the supply chain... Uh, challenges into Kazakhstan are tremendous, especially since the drama with Russia, because that's how they used to receive the seafood. But we work with the most incredible entrepreneurs who can organize anything. It's such a different culture. And they have built four strong restaurants. And we have enormous respect for them. I mean, sometimes I want to strangle them, but they're incredible. You know, their partners also told them Kazakhstan is like a horse eating country. Seafood was more absent than it was even in South Africa. So the supply chain is problematic, but uh, between them and us, we make a plan. And of course, it's not just about seafood. It's about everything that goes with it, the service, the spices, um, you know, the intrinsic stuff. And my hat off to them. They're still going strong. Uh, as you go into these new markets, not yourself, you don't go into all these new markets yourself, you get partners. And those are the partners that somehow find out about, about Ocean Basket. Is it generally people who've traveled to South Africa looking for concepts or coming on holiday and going, oh, that was nice. Actually, let's take this home with us. Mm. How does that yeah, process work? So the only, the only territories of Cyprus and UK, which the company does own, every single licensee we have, is a partner of ours because they came and they had one, two, three, four, five experiences and they found us, every single one. Uh, how do you manage those relationships? How do you control those relationships? Because you've got people who are very you know, goal-orientated themselves, they're very entrepreneurial themselves, mm -hmm. and now suddenly they've got to play by your rules. Um, is it, uh, you say sometimes you want to strangle some of your partners. Uh, it's a healthy sort of strangulation, I guess. Oh, and they want to strangle us. We try and not work with languages such as rules. So if somebody is investing in your brand, we have enormous respect for them because they've invested a couple of million dollars. 
And I think the beginning of the relationship is so important. And many of the relationships, we didn't start the right way. So going into the present and all the lessons, it's about caring about what they believe. And the worst thing, and we've made those mistakes, is trying to dictate to them. Because here we sit in Johannesburg and we are bossing someone around in Kazakhstan or in Mauritius about something that we haven't first thought to understand. And we have made those mistakes. But I would say even in South Africa, our relationships are good because we don't believe in these are the rules, go do it. We put the guest at the center of everything and that makes common ground for debate common ground for decisions and certain things are just not compromised. But at the end of the day, nobody wakes up in the morning to deliberately deliver horrible food. People have also suffered. COVID's been terrible. We can't go scream at people about spending whatever, 250,000 rand on new equipment. And we need to buy the new equipment because the food suffers. So it's a relationship. Everything in life is a relationship. I see you you see me, and we have to then see the same outcome. The UK, you described in sort of technical detail as to how difficult it is. You went and um, opened with partners in the UK in Bromley in Kent, and then more recently mm. at Richmond in the southwest of London. Why has it been mm. so difficult? Why is this particular birthing of a of your brand in a new market, which is home to so many other South African concepts, been so, so mm. awkward? So firstly, we didn't partner. So we, we decided we've got to put our money where our mouth is. It's such a new territory. And we decided to go it alone. We did have lots of people advising us in the UK. But I guess the biggest shock to the system is if you look at the other countries in which we operate, they're not that different to South Africa. Mauritius, Dubai, you know, even Kazakhstan, there's a level of, you know, craziness and tenacity and a bit of rule breaking. But now we entered a true, true, true first world where people don't really want to work in restaurants. Brexit has exited the true hospitality workers. We're not there only for the South Africans. Bless them and we appreciate them. But we've got to become relevant to everybody in the UK. So it's a completely different playing field. Um, you know, it's... Sometimes I feel like we've played tennis on concrete for so long and now we've moved straight to the Wimbledon court and we haven't had any training on it, but we've got the same racket and the same balls. So we've had to make some adjustments to our rackets and maybe look at different hours of practice. But the biggest shock to the system has definitely been engaging with the people, attracting the right people when you're a no-name brand. So known brands struggle to find staff because of Brexit, because the UK person, the, 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 the person who lives there doesn't really choose restauranting or hospitality as their first choice. Because it's hard. I mean, and you've and you also just found the structure of Victorian buildings difficult to deal with. I mean, instead of moving into an empty sort of cavernous space as you might in a yes. shopping centre in South Africa. You're a psychic. So, and so suddenly you're operating over five floors in a building that was built, I don't know, as something completely different 150 years ago. No, it's, it's a complete shock. And as much as we prepared for over two years, 
Um, you know, it's a bit like I remember going to birthing lessons before I had a baby. I was pregnant <laughs> and they were such fun. And then I actually had to get into that chair and I thought, oh, my hat. So it's a similar feeling, but you're right. But the different levels of floors, the weather, you know, um, we bake our own bread in the restaurants. We didn't think about it, that there will be cold air coming into the restaurants. Then the bread doesn't rise because the proving doesn't work. Or the pan is hot, but it gets cold because it's cold. Little things. I can go on and on about it, but small, small things. And I can see why it's not easy to crack that market. But we've got two restaurants. They're doing well, especially Kingston, because the Saffers are closer to Kingston. But we're also doing well with some locals. There's a lot of um, Koreans in the area. Bromley's a cute little suburb. That's our three-story baby. That makes us very tired. Um, but we're learning. It's only been a year. On the 14th of Feb, it's only been a year. What is your goal there? Because it's it, it's a market that is well-served by fish and chip shops. It's well-served by the, the linen tablecloth brigade and silver and crystal and expensive seafood. Mm. The, what would have attracted you to that market was that there isn't the sort of casual dining element um, that you've introduced in mm. many other parts of the world. Is there a market, do you think, that you, that you can tap into? Definitely. Ocean Basket is like that little black dress. It just works anywhere. As long as we dress it up or dress it according to the world in which we are living. We're not fish and chips. We don't sell fish and chips. Of course, fish and chips is a big seller, especially in South Africa, but nowhere else in the world. So that's accessible seafood offering in a beautiful environment that is still gorgeous, but not uptight, that serves abundance, that serves a welcoming environment, it doesn't exist. There's either the fish and chips or there's the white linen and there ain't anything in between. So the opportunities are abundant in many countries, but we're focusing for now. Thank you so far this evening to our guest tonight. That's Grace Harding. Grace is the chief executive of Ocean Basket. Tonight's shapeshifter, she takes us a, a homegrown uh, brand and takes it global. We're going to pick up more with her in just a moment. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Wrapping up with tonight's shapeshifter, Grace Harding, the chief executive at Ocean Basket. Did I read correctly, Grace Harding, and please forgive me if I've got this wrong, that you spent some of your formative life in an orphanage? I did. You read correctly. Oh, okay. I mean, and how, how, did, how did that shape you? How did that, because you, you are a resilient individual. You're a tough individual. You, you have a very gentle touch, but you, you don't take defeat. You don't accept defeat. You're not somebody who, who bows down in the face of adversity. Mm. Uh, I think everybody is resilient in their own way, but uh, definitely my childhood has contributed to many of my positive and crappy traits, both and. Uh, I was only in the orphanage for six months. My mother was very uh, ill, psychologically, mentally. So um, maybe that's what's contributed to my absolute passion and empathy for people. Um, I think the whole journey of your life shapes you. It's not just one moment. But yes, I'm sure it did contribute to resilience, to curiosity, to looking for mentors. I'm very comfortable with being uncomfortable I'm very comfortable with saying, I don't know, please help me, because I didn't have a lot of help and guidance like a normal child. 
So I think that that's been a huge strength that I'm really comfortable to just go to people and say, oh my gosh, help me. I don't know what I'm doing here or what do you think? So that shaped me and I guess the resilience and being exposed to tough things happen and then it's okay and then they happen and then it's okay. So perhaps a roller coaster ride from a very young age um, prevented me from vomiting when I was on the roller coaster at a later stage. Yeah. <laughs> the... The retail's hard. I mean, restaurants are retail and restaurants are even harder than retail. Why is it that you love this industry? Because you do love this in industry. You you represent the industry in terms <laughs> of industry bodies. You run your own business. Well, you, you run your business that you and Fats run together. Uh, you have a deep love for it. And it is brutal. It is a tough, I do. tough relentless. You're right. Ride. First of all, I think... I mean, I loved being in retail. I grew up in retail. And I think the restaurant industry is closer to the theater because, and I've always been a frustrated performer, because it's about giving people an experience. I always say that every day we've got to put on a show. And it's, it is hard. You've got to clean the restaurant every day, fillet the fish, clean the calamari, tolerate customers who, who are having a bad day or staff. Um, there's load shedding here, isn't it fun? <laughs> or staff who are having a bad day. So um, I love the industry. You touch people. You make a difference to their lives. You can transform things. And I'm very lucky to work for a man like Fats Lazaridis because his vision and my vision are aligned and our purposes and intents are aligned. But I could never be in a job where I'm dealing with theoretical people or theoretical money. Um, I love the tactileness of it and the speed of it. Um, and I love food. I love cooking. And even in my own home, my greatest joy is to feed people. I'm like a good Jewish Greek mother. <laughs> what is the vision? I mean, this is a privately owned business. Uh, mm -hmm. How do you and Fats exit one day? What, what, what is the, you say you share the vision. What is that vision? Fetzer's vision is very clear, and, and I do relate to it, and it's about longevity. So to grow the business, to truly grow it now, because we've been growing, but to truly take off, we have to make some very bold financial decisions, but the decisions are made off a platform of longevity for the brand. So should we partner with people, get investors, anything like that? The, the common vision is very important. He has no intention of selling the business. Um, he wants it to continue and grow. And he always says he wants to be in the CNN Top 100 Club. So the vision is to, to really expand this brand in various ways, choosing innovative business models and to keep it whole and to just guard it from things like, you know, well, let's just produce everything centrally push it out a bottle, you know, we must be really, really careful. The, the line between efficiency and removing the love is so fine. Um, so it's, it's a tough balancing act, but he doesn't want to say that. Grace Harding, what a pleasure to have you on the radio this evening. Thank you for sharing with us the passionate Grace Harding, Chief Executive of Ocean Basket.